This podcast includes strong language, descriptions of war and deals with issues of trauma and death. He said, right, whoever's drunk, you better sober up real quick. He said, we've got a situation down on South Georgia. And then he walked out. I said to him, I said, look, um, my guys are so determined to see this out. I guarantee you that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. It's quite easy to go out fighting, but as a young lieutenant, his job was not to let 21 other men die for absolutely no purpose. What is it that drives people to be brave? To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I'm Darren Coventry, former soldier and now video and podcast producer at BFBS. I've been talking to men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. We talk about what happened, what they thought at the time, and how they feel about it now. This is TN Medals. So, Keith, welcome to TN Medals. Uh, first question is always, how do you take your wet? Uh, just white, no sugar, thank you. Again, pretty basic standard. Yep. Yeah. Why is it a wet in the Marines? I've worked with the Marines a lot over the years and I never knew why it was a wet. Uh, I think it must be something to do with the Navy because the sea, uh, well, <laughs> anything relating to water is, is a, or any drink is a yeah. wet. The actual sea is ogging, isn't it? Um, we've yeah. got our own language, uh, but it's a naval language, I think, that the Royal Marines have adopted. So, Keith, you were a Royal Marines officer. Eventually, you, you left as a captain, but we're going to talk a little bit about a time before that. So I guess the, a good place to start is what was it that attracted you to the Marines? Where did that come from? Where did that spark start? Well, when I was at school, I was always academically bright and I was always physically fit as well. So I wanted to do something that was a combination of both. However, my father had ideas that I should become an engineer or um, something to do with electronics at the time or even computers. And uh, I did my A-levels uh, had a place at university to go and study electronics. And it was at that point my father turned around to me and said, well, I'm not going to fund you through university unless you start putting your finger out because your A-level grades weren't as high as I hoped they might be. So I turned around to him and said, well, in that case, I'm not going to go to university. And he said, well, what are you going to do then? I said, I'm going to um, join the Royal Marines, I said. He said, you'll never do that. And so I did. Just because he said you'd never do it, yeah. well, I was <laughs> inspired a you a bit. Yeah, it was the fact he said that you'll never do that really sort of made me cross, jump all the hurdles on the, on the way, because it wasn't that easy to join the Royal Marines. I think they, the year I applied, I think 2,000 people with the correct academic qualifications applied to become a Royal Marine officer, and we had 36 people pass out at the end. So uh, it it's was... It's quite a brutal selection yes, process. Yes, it was. And Just getting to Limpston is difficult in itself. But then once you're there, only half of half of those that make it to Limpston actually end up passing out. So your early career, um, how did that, you know, you finish at Limpston, where did you where did you go? First unit I went to was 4-1 Commando in Deal, and that involved uh, going out to Brunei and doing some jungle warfare instructor training, uh, a UN tour in Cyprus, followed by a South Omar tour uh, when I was at Newry and at Cross McGlen. And it was in my first unit, I met, uh, my, my first troop sergeant was a, a sergeant called Barry Nelms. And uh, he sort of said to me one day, he said, what are you going to do when you finish being a troop officer? Because you're only a troop officer for one year, because the next batch has to come and take over from you. And I said, well, I haven't really thought about it, sergeant. Um, he said, well, one thing you should consider is becoming an OCRM on HMS Endurance. He was a former detachment sergeant major on Endurance. And I said, I don't want to work with Jolly Jack. I, I joined the Royal Marines to climb cliffs or daggers between my teeth. And he said, well, you're not going to be able to do that all the time. Um, and the thing about endurance, he said, it's only a small detachment, but at least you have a command, you know, whereas otherwise you might end up going back to Limpston as a recruit troop officer or... Administration. Administration or, yeah. or something along those lines. So I, I took him up on his offer and actually applied to become at a very young age, the officer commanding Royal Marines on HMS Endurance. HMS Endurance was the Royal Navy's Antarctic patrol vessel. 22-year-old Lieutenant Keith Mills was the officer commanding the 12 Royal Marines on board. She had a 
theoretical guardship role as the Falklands Island guardship, but uh, the only weapons she had on board were two 20mm Ehrlichens and uh, two WASP helicopters which could carry air-to-surface missiles, but not a very effective warship at all. Her main role was for surveying in the Antarctic, eavesdropping in that part of the world as well, uh, being a British presence in the general area. And so what's life on board like, you know, Falklands detachment aside, you know, what's life quite, on board? Quite difficult uh, for me. Uh, it's my first experience working with the Royal Navy and they work completely different to, to the Royal Marines. Obviously, everyone on board has to have a job. Uh, you can't, you're not just taken on board as a Royal Marine detachment. So uh, one of the guys in my detachment was a chef, so he complimented the chefs on board the ship. Bob Ashton became the ship's butcher and some, I can't remember what everybody else's tasks were, but my tasks were I was the diving officer on board, I was one of the flight deck officers, I had to do my bridge watch keeping along with everybody else, as well as being the officer commanding the Royal Marine Detachment. My name's Bob Ashton, I was a Royal Marine on HMS Endurance. Keith was uh, very young, very confident really. Um, typical young Royal Marines officer really bit full of himself sometimes, but um, used to get in a lot of trouble because on a ship, um, naval officers can be quite, you know, a bit like guards officers, love their traditions. Keith would often come down to what we called the Royal Marines barracks and say he'd just been kicked out of a wardroom by the first lieutenant because he, um, because he put tomato sauce on his chips rather than having it in a little bowl beside him. Um, he was always getting in trouble in that way. But, yeah, quite likeable character, really. A regular port of call was the tiny South Atlantic island of South Georgia. It's a British overseas territory, almost a thousand miles away from the Falkland Islands. In the early 20th century, it was home to a settlement of Norwegian whalers. By the 1980s, the only inhabitants were a team of scientists from the British Antarctic Survey. On the 19th of March, 1982, a group of Argentinian scrap metal workers arrived on the island to dismantle an abandoned whaling station. But when they refused to show their passports and raised an Argentinian flag, the scientists raised the alarm. Keith and his detachment of Royal Marines were on the Falkland Islands at the time. So it was at that stage that the governor and the captain of the ship, uh, I assume in conjunction with the United Kingdom government, uh, formed a plan that the endurance would go back to South Georgia with a view of either encouraging these uh, Argentinians to have their passport stamped or evict them. And before we left, it was decided that because my detachment was so small, only 12 Marines plus myself, that we'd be complemented with another nine from Naval Party 8901, which was the Fulton Islands detachment. And so I had a, a section uh, under lunch, Corporal Thompson, Geordie Thompson, who joined us. So they, they became part of the HMS and George detachment. My name is Steve Holding. I was a Royal Marine on the Naval Party 8901-8182 detachment down the Falkland Islands. That night, which was the Saturday, the 20th of March, we were downtown. We used to arrange our own discos because there was not a lot of nightlife in the Falklands at that time. So we used to take our own sound system downtown and, and have our own discos with the locals, of course. And the first I heard about it was when our driver, Murray Patterson, came downtown to see us. And I was actually coming out of the toilets and he came up to me and said, Brum, which was my nickname then, he said, we've got to go back to camp, we've been recalled. And this was probably about, I don't, I don't know the exact time, but you've got to be looking at about between 10 and 11 o'clock at night, something like that. So we'd all had a few beers that, by that point. And he said, we've been recalled back to camp. Uh, and I said, why? And he said, there's a problem down South Georgia. Uh, and I said, right. I said, where's South Georgia? Well, I didn't know where he was, I mean, that had got no relevance to us whatsoever. So we had the new uh, platoon weapon sergeant with us and he came into the bar and said, right, quite stroppy really. He said, right, whoever's drunk, you better sober up real quick. He said, we've got a, a situation down on South Georgia. And then he walked out. At this stage, I don't think anyone saw it as a, well, 
I, I certainly didn't see it as a prelude to war. Um, we certainly saw it as a sabre-rattling by the Argentinians. And I was quite excited because uh, the, the sailing time between the Falklands and South Georgia is about three days, three to four days, and a ship at the speed of endurance goes. So we had three or four days in which to formulate a plan. And the plan was that when we arrived off the Falklands, the Royal Marine Detachment would be disembarked. We would yomp over the mountains at night, surround Leith, whaling station, which is where these Argentinians were, the captain would fly in in the helicopter in the morning, invite them to um, have their passport stamped, and, and if they didn't, uh, he was going to click his fingers and the Royal Marines would rise up out of the ground around him and basically say, well, you are going to have your passport stamped. So it was sort of quite an exciting time for, for me uh, to sort of plan all this. And it was only when we arrived off South Georgia that suddenly the word came from above that we were not to do that because the situation was deteriorating quickly between Argentina and the UK at the time, and something the foreign officers quite correctly perceived that could be a hostile act on our part. So instead of actually going into Leith, which had been the original plan, we went round to Gritviken and we uh, basically anchored off Gritviken while the foreign office and the Argentinians squabbled about what was going to happen next. I heard a story about you got a message. I guess that came from uh, endurance. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but you get the message of don't resist too much. No, I, it's a great story, and I wish it was true, but it isn't actually true. The words apparently were that um, I was told to only put up token resistance before surrendering. Well, that is not a true statement because we never discussed putting up resistance against the Argentines at any stage. We had a, another film crew on board at the time who were making a documentary about Antarctica, and it was um, one of the photographers, his name Bob, was quite a jovial character. He's the one who came up with this quote and said, you know, I heard Keith Mills say, F token resistance, I'm going to make their eyes water. And of course, because it's such a great quote, it's gone in all sorts of books and now gets repeated as if it's a fact. But, well, um, now I'm from the horse's mouth. Yeah, um, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I would have liked to have said something like I mean, that, but it's not true. You can true. still claim it. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> um, so you arrived, tell, tell me what unfolds from endurance arriving. So we're, we're there basically anchored off Gritvik and waiting, waiting for the Foreign Office to decide what to do next. Uh, in between, we decided it would be prudent for us to put a, an observation position on the ridge between uh, Gritvik and, and Leith so we could observe the activity. And I think we put a, a four-man OP up there, which we used to cycle people through so there wasn't the same people all the time. And they would report the comings and goings. And, of course, we were being fed information from the, the ship was being fed information from the UK all the time. The Argentines then brought a ship in, the Beherburn Successo. Yeah, so she came in and we thought, oh, this is it. The Argentinians are leaving. But ROP reported not only were they not leaving, they were actually unloading more equipment and more people as well. Um, and I think we got it to about the 31st of March uh, where I was summoned to the captain's cabin. Uh, and he was sort of looking quite ashen, I would say, and quite concerned. He said, we've just received a... Uh, top secret message from the UK, we have reason to believe that the Fulton Islands are about to be invaded in the next 24 hours or 48 hours. And as such, we've been ordered as the Fulton Islands guard ship to proceed back to the Falklands as quickly as possible, which was quite funny because the ship could only do 11 knots and it was three or four days sailing. Um, he said, but we've also been ordered to leave a British presence on the island before we go. Um, so it makes logical sense for me that we're going to leave the Royal Marine Detachment because you're, although you're integral to the ship, you're not as integral as everybody else is, plus the fact you're all Arctic warfare trained, etc., etc. The Royal Marines went ashore at King Edward Point, armed with 20,000 rounds of ammunition, their entire war allowance, while HMS Endurance set sail for the Falklands. So, what's South Georgia like? Totally different to the Falklands. It is very mountainous, very prone to changes in the weather. Catabatic winds can come down the glaciers and literally knock you off your feet. It can be a sunny, glorious sunny day and then suddenly it's, uh, it's a blizzard. You've been disembarked and you're at Gretviken. Gretviken, we're at the, at the Bass base, the British Antarctic Survey base, where yep. they were being very hospitable to us. They had a lovely big building called Shackleton House, so we actually had some pretty decent beds, as far as I can recall. And we were all in Shackleton House that evening, and we were listening to Fulton Lyons Radio, Patrick Watson, Fulton Lyons Radio, and 
I can't remember exactly what time of the evening it was, but it, it came as a bolt out of the blue when he suddenly said, the governor is going to be coming along and make an announcement shortly. It's important that everyone keeps their radios on um, because there is the possibility that the, the Falkland Isles might actually be invaded tomorrow morning. Uh, so this was on the evening of the 1st of April. And I remember sort of making, uh, Pete Leach, my sergeant major, and I had a quick chat about this. So we thought, well, there's nothing most of the men can do at this moment in time. So they all went off to bed, and, or most of them did, as far as I can recall. And Pete Leach and I and Steve Martin, the Basque commander, stayed listening to this radio. Good morning. It is with the deepest regret that I have to report a complete lack of response from the Argentine government to the Security Council's call to refrain from the use of force against the Falkland Islands. And of course Rex Hunt came on and declared a state of emergency. Well, I'd never, I'd only ever seen that on films before. Under these emergency powers, I can detain any person, authorise the entering of any premises, acquire any property and issue such orders as I see fit. The Falkland Islands were mobilising, ready for war, but Again, you're still thinking, surely not, surely this isn't going to happen. And then about sort of four or five o'clock in the morning, um, you know, Pat Watts came on and said, Patrick Watts, the Argentine fleet has now been sighted off Cape Pembroke and there are landing craft approaching the Narrows. And then you could sort of hear some firing in the background. And then the next thing I know, everything goes off air. And uh, I looked at Pete Leach and he looked at me and we said, holy shit. Right, stand to. So all the Marines rushed outside, took up defensive fire positions. It's absolutely teeming down with rain. It's this Force 11, Force 10 gale blowing at the time. The plan was to invade the Falklands on the 1st of April and South Georgia at much the same time. As it was, a big storm brewed up. So that delayed the invasion of the Falklands to the 2nd of April and that storm was coming across towards South Georgia uh, and it delayed the invasion of South Georgia to the 3rd of April. And all that happened was the, about 9 o'clock that morning the Bahia Paraiso came into Cumberland Bay and there was a message over Channel 16 to the radio operator, the Bass radio operator, it said something along the lines, following our successful invasion of the Malvinas Islands, it's very important that you stay tuned to this uh, Channel 16 radio frequency because tomorrow morning we are going to come with a very important announcement for you. And with that, the Bihoparaiso turned round and slowly drifted back out to sea. Endurance had insisted on radio silence between ourselves and the ship because they didn't want it to be intercepted by the Argentinians to, who could then pinpoint exactly where... Because uh, Endurance is making its way of back course, to uh, Falklands. So poor old Endurance, she'd got, you know, a third of the way to the Fulton Islands when they'd been invaded and it was pointless her going any further. So she, at this point, is probably turning around to start coming back. Now, although I'd been given orders not to communicate except as a last resort, I thought, well, this is pretty much a, a last resort because it's quite serious. The Argentinians are going to be back 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. They're probably going to ask us to surrender. But I wanted to know what I was required to do at that stage. And the first message I sent back was, the Argentinians have just made radio contact with us and intend to do so again tomorrow at 0900 hours. What are our instructions? Sent that off and I knew that it would be a while before um, they could get back to us because they would have to obviously consult with the UK, etc, etc, write their own message. It's generally accepted that attacking forces need three times as many troops as the defending forces to be successful. Keith's Marine Detachment had time to prepare defensive positions and were unusually well armed with machine guns, rocket launchers and all that ammo they carried ashore. They also had time to make a cunning plan. I got the assault engineer who was with us, a guy called Les Daniels, to wire up the jetty with a load of uh, explosives and kerosene uh, so that we could actually blow the entire jetty up if something tried to come alongside. And I remember when he completed his task, I said to him, I said, Les, um, how's it looking down the jetty? Is it sort of ready to go? 
He said, oh, yes, sir. He said, um, it won't be a question of them coming to the jetty. I'll send the, the jetty to them if necessary now. The other thing I should say is, although we had all these explosives with us as well, we actually didn't have any means of detonation. So Les had actually taken a wire and taken it to a three-pin plug in one, of the, in one of the buildings at the end of the jetty. And it was a question of plugging in, flicking the switch to initiate it, rather than the old thing that you might see on, uh, on World War II. So some, some really good improvisation. <laughs> yeah. And um, we also took the opportunity to wire up a, 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 the, the, where the elephant seals had been on the beach. We'd put a lot of explosives there as well. So the guys are busy digging in, uh, and anyone who's dug in will know it's a long process. It takes usually at least 24 hours to, to get anywhere. And the bass radio operator is still monitoring the radio, uh, and I can't remember what time of the day it was, but it's probably later in the afternoon. He gives me a call. He says, I've just got a message coming in from Endurance. So Pete Leach and I rush down to the uh, radio shack and uh, get this message. Uh, we then have to decode it, and the message says exactly, word for word, when the Argentinians make radio contact with you tomorrow, you are not to cooperate. And I thought, what does that mean? Does that mean I turn the radio off? Or does that mean I don't comply with whatever wish they come up with or whatever? And I said to Pete, I said, this, is, this doesn't make sense. So I quickly uh, encoded another message, and it said, this one is, again, word for word, your last message is ambiguous. Please clarify. So sent that one off. Knew again it would be some time before it came back. The guys are still digging in. We're thinking about what our options are. And I can honestly say it's the only time ever in my 18 years in the Royal Marines that I was not complaining about digging a trench. Uh, when you do it for training and, and practice purposes, you have to dig a trench. It probably takes you pretty much a day to do it everybody's moaning and complaining because you don't want to do it. But when you're doing it for real, it's a very different story. So the, the, the hours ticked by. I can't remember exactly when the um, next message came back from Endurance. But uh, the next message that did come back, which was much later in the day, it might have been early evening, was, when asked to do so, you are not to surrender. So I thought, fantastic. That is crystal clear. Yeah, yeah. Now, with the Marines I had on endurance, you join the Royal Marines because you know that if there is going to be a skirmish somewhere in the world, there's a probability that you'll be involved in it. Well, I had nine guys from 8901 who'd just missed the biggest skirmish in the world because they were with me and hadn't been left on the followers. They were all incredibly pissed off and quite bitter because they were expecting, like probably the rest of the attachment, that we would be asked to surrender without firing a shot, which would be incredibly humiliating. But it wasn't so much me missing out, it was that my buddies are all gonna die. You know, these are guys with, that I've lived with for 12 months and I'm not there with them. That's, that's what my initial thought was. Uh, but then quite soon after that, it flipped to, hold on, they're actually coming for us now, so we've got to get ready ourselves, which obviously we did. The next thing that happened um, about an hour or so later, uh, the, again, the radio operator, the British Antarctic Survey radio operator, came rushing up and said, I'm just getting another message come in. So Pete Leach and I went down to see it, decoded it, and it said, the OSRM is not, repeat not, to take any action which may endanger life. So I thought, <laughs> I said to Pete, I said, what does that mean? I mean, they're telling us when asked to do so, don't surrender, but don't endanger anyone's life in the process. I was actually on sentry when the Argentinians came around. It's hard to explain without a map, but when they came around the corner of the land and I sat down behind this rock and I remember the sun was beating down I closed my eyes for literally, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds thinking, this is lovely, this sun. And then I opened my eyes and then there's two great big ships in front of me. And uh, excuse the expression, I shit myself, not literally. And that's obviously when I ran back to tell Keith that they were coming. And I probably ran about, I don't know, 150, maybe 200 meters along this shingle beach. 
and I nearly vomited when I got to Keith. I was so, you know, wound up, let's say. And I, all I said to him was, boss, they're coming. Well, at that, everybody just bomb burst into their trenches. And the Bahia Paraiso came into the bay. She came up on the radio saying, this is Captain Trombetta or whoever he was. Following our successful uh, occupation of the Malvinas Islands yesterday, we've come to take uh, the surrender of South Georgia. Um, the governor of the Falkland Islands has surrendered the uh, Falklands, South Georgia and the dependencies in exchange for all government and military personnel being returned back to the UK unharmed. Uh, now at this stage we were getting the Bass radio operator to do all the talking. Is that because the British Antarctic Survey were effectively still in command? Correct. Yeah. And I think it was that point that a helicopter started flying around the area, uh, doing a little reconnaissance or whatever it might have been. And I realised then that things were unfolding quickly and I hadn't had a chance to get back to endurance on their contradictory messages and I wanted to clarify the situation before things developed any further. So I thought, right, I need to take the bull by the horns here. So I took hold of the microphone and I said, this is the uh, officer commanding the Royal Marine Garrison on South Georgia. Your instructions are completely contrary to what ours are. We need some time to clarify the situation. So do, under no circumstances, let your men come ashore until we've clarified the situation between ourselves and the United Kingdom. And the guy came back and said, that's fine. He said, well, we'll give you five minutes. And I'm thinking he could have given me five hours and it wouldn't have been enough time for me to get in touch with Endurance and Endurance Whitehall and everything else. The Bahia Appraiser was sat there and suddenly this, um, this small frigate had appeared, the Guriku. Most people call it a corvette, but Jane's fighting ships call it uh, an Esvisa, which is a light frigate. It's a French-built thing. And um, suddenly she'd appeared. So I thought, oh, this, is, um, this sort of changes the game a bit. 100 mil gun on the front. I was convinced it was aimed directly at my cap badge. So I'm standing on the jetty, or just short of the jetty, and the Greco, instead of trying to come alongside, she just sails past, does a big U-turn in front of Gripviken, and then slowly sails back out to sea again, uh, without even making an attempt to land. But I'd been so preoccupied with watching what Greco was doing, I failed to see another Alouette helicopter coming in and landing and uh, disembarking several Argentine Marines only about 80 or 90 yards from literally where I was standing. And I thought, this is not looking good. You know, the RGs are literally, they've got now got feet on the ground, on the peninsula. I was still unclear exactly as to what I was meant to be doing because don't surrender, but don't do anything which might endanger life. Um, so I thought, again, I'll try and make contact with these guys. So I sort of stood there, put my hand up, and the first two or three guys who disembarked didn't see me, but the fourth one did. And I never forget the look on his face as he looked over and saw me in full combat kit, sort of with my arm up. And he tapped the guy in front of him who looked at me and began to sort of turn and bring his weapon to bear. And I thought, right, that's it, I'm out of here. So Les Daniels and I go herring back to our positions and we dive in our respective trenches. And uh, no sooner had I got there than um, there's a Puma helicopter flying around now and he's approaching our position and there's a helipad literally just about 100 yards in front of our position which is a sort of semi-circular defence around, almost around the helipad which is just off the beach. Incredible bit of flying. Come up from Gritviken I suppose along, uh, along the shoreline Suddenly, he's right up, nose up in the air, breaking hard effectively. And um, I thought, well, <laughs> what's this? I seemed to think it was Al Larkin, one of my corporals, shouting, Sir, the helicopter's about to land. What do you want us to do? And I thought, well, I've done what I can to prevent there being bloodshed now, but I can't do any more because if there's 18 guys in that helicopter, if they get out at such close range, and there's only 20 of us, 22 of us, and there's the guys already on there, we're in trouble. And I'd always been taught through training that you 
always use the word fire when you want people to engage the enemy, but uh, I must have watched too many John Wayne movies because I just remember shouting out, hit it. And with that, everyone unleashed into this helicopter. Full magazine went into the port engine effectively and she started belching out smoke and pulling away as fast as she could. So, yeah, she weren't landing anyway, whatever. At the same time, the Greco starts re-entering the bay, coming straight past us. The Greco could have sat 10 kilometers away from us and bombarded us with a 100 mm gun and um, made mincemeat of us. There she was 400 meters away from us. So um, as the Puma went down into dead ground, we all turned our attention onto the Greco firing frantically at it. In my case, four magazines, effectively as a single burst, or two or three bursts at the most, firing away at her. Next to me was uh, a trench with Dave Coombs and John Stone Street with a Carl Gustav anti-tank um, anti weapon. But the first 84 millimetre round was short by about 20 metres and instead of going into the water, because the water was so flat, it skimmed along and hit the ship. Right midships, probably about a metre, metre and a half above the waterline. And we all know how an anti-tank missile works, where it's designed to sort of bore a very small hole into the tank and then take off a scab on the inside. That's going through 10 inches or 12 inches of armour plate. When it goes through half an inch of, of steel, it just blows a big hole in it. So there was now a nice big hole in the side of Greco, uh, just above the waterline. One of the guys had managed to, by good fortune or whatever, one of his 66 millimeter rockets had actually hit the, the front 100 millimeter gun and had stopped it firing. So in the space of about 30 seconds, this very impressive warship with all guns blazing had just became a listless, smoking hulk that was drifting by. But the battle wasn't going entirely their way. If you remember the Alouette helicopter that had landed earlier, that had landed uh, however many people it was, I don't think it was that many, four to six, something like that. They were in some of the little outhouses that were down by the jetty, and that's when we started to fire onto them as well. But also, my trench started to get some incoming fire as well and we didn't know initially where it was actually coming from. So you hear a crack when it goes over your head and then obviously the thump when it hits something behind you. So we were in the cracks literally a few feet over our heads and, and we couldn't figure out where this was coming from. Uh, and to this day I still don't know where it came from, but somebody was getting very close to, to hitting us. But I actually put a general person machine gun right at the end of the beach in front of Shackleton House with brass O'Hare there. I think George Thompson might have been in the same trench at the time. And uh, George Thompson was the Lance Corporal. And uh, Bryce says, wow. He said, look, look at all those argies. What am I meant to do? And George says, well, shoot the effers. So he lets go with a burst right down the beach and hits a couple of them. And the others sort of scamper into the buildings. Uh, and the Argentinians did learn. They learned slowly. They learned that if they actually brought anything with them range of us, we'd shoot at it as well as the Puma, we damaged the, at least one other Alouette. We'd shot at the guys who'd landed, we'd shot the guys in the Puma, we'd had a go at the Garico. They thought, right, uh, we obviously can't do a full frontal attack on this position now, it seems like it's and pretty well did you know well how many troops you might be facing? No, no you idea at this stage. thought there might be 30 on one ship, but I guess Initially got... thought there were, yeah. but as soon as the battle started, I realised there was much more than what I thought there originally were. So then the Argentinians started uh, using the remaining helicopters to land troops on the far side of Cumberland Bay, on Brown Mountain. And then they were making their way along Brown Mountain to, which is a low-lying sort of bit like Dartmoor-type area, making their way to Gritviken, which is about a mile probably from where they so were. So they're now trying one. to outflank So they're now trying to outflank us. And staying out of Whilst range. they're the far, far side, they're out of our range. There's nothing we could do to engage them. And there was a pause for us on our side of the battle because there was no one left for us to engage. And I had then to pause and reflect upon the orders I'd been given, which were 
when asked to surrender, you are not to do so. Well, we hadn't surrendered when we'd been asked to do so. We'd put up a, a bloody good fight. Do not take any action which may endanger life. Well, okay, that wasn't true. We had taken action which endangered life. And one of my Marines, um, Corporal Nigel Peters, had taken two rounds through the arm or shoulder at this time. And we'd obviously killed and wounded quite a few Argentinians in the process. But I thought, there's only one way this is going to go from here. We can't engage them. We can't even escape anymore because now they've got work their way into Gritvik and that was, we'd have to do fighting in built-up areas to get through Gritvik and to get to our supplies. It became apparent to me that it would be just pointless in us trying to carry on to continue this battle. So um, he said, basically, I've, we've done all we can. We were aware of one bloke had been shot twice in the arm and was going into shock. So um, he said, I now intend to uh, try and surrender. Has anyone got any violent ob objections? Well, a few of us did sort of object. I did, yeah. <laughs> to my shame, I, I, I called him some names. Well then, he said, at the end of the day, it's my decision and I've made it. And then, a little while later, the Sergeant Major, who was nowhere near Keith Mills, he was up in Shackleton House, shouted, you know, what's happening? And, you know, we, we told him. And he said, well, we're winning. We'd won that part of it. We weren't, we, we weren't going to win any, anything else, I don't think. And Greco had gone out, out of sight of us. She definitely did fire, I'd imagine, 40 or 20 mil, some bursts, because you know, they went close to me and yeah, it was, it was totally different to 7.62. You felt these rounds go past and almost a sort of vacuum as they went past, you just felt it sort of suck you. Uh, and it was only a matter of time before I, I knew what a gun was capable of. But of course you then got the problem, how do you communicate your intention to the enemy to cease fire when they're so far away. I think Keith sort of said, um, has anyone got anything white? And um, I think Andy Lee, who was in with me, had one of these old um, reversible waterproof jackets um, in the Marines. We had them, they were white on the inside and, and green on the outside. So, um, so yeah, I've got a, a, an Arctic reversible jacket waterproof and um, so I think Keith Mills said well stick it up on a couple of rifles so Andy Lee and Tomo they got the rifles stuck it through the arms stuck it up above the trench <laughs> burst the machine gun fire went straight through it and um, then it all went quiet for a little while next thing um, Keith Mills crawls over, appears beside us on his belly, and uh, the thing was back down in the trench at that point, I think, and he took it off the rifles. Yeah, and uh, I suppose it was quite a brave thing to do. He held it up with his arms, nothing happened. So then he stood up with it and walked down to where we knew this group of Argentines were that had come out of the Alouette and slowly walked down there. And well, the rest of it is, is his story, you know. So I walked onto the beach, put my weapon down, carried on walking so they could see I was unarmed. And fortunately for me, an Argentine came out of the buildings, met me on the beach and Again, fortunately for me, he spoke English because I certainly didn't speak any Spanish in those days. And uh, I said to him, I said, look, um, we're in a pretty difficult situation here, as you can see, but not quite as difficult as the situation you're in. I said, because my guys are so determined to see this out, I guarantee you that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. Did you get that feeling from you know, your Oh, yeah. They wanted to oh yeah! When I announced that I was going to um, surrender, they were not happy. Very difficult. 
I remember Pete Leach saying, why are we surrendering so? We, we're winning hands down. Well, we were winning hands down at that moment in time, but we wouldn't be winning hands down an hour later if it had continued. But Steve Holding has a different view. He negotiated a withdrawal, not, not a surrender. We did not. There's a, there's a big misconception here that we surrendered. At no point did we surrender. He negotiated a truce, uh, and very cleverly as well. Surrender's a very strong word, isn't it? You know, uh, you've totally capitulated and given in, and, and, you know, it's a very, very strong and emotive word. Probably doesn't sound to you or to the, to the average Joe much, a surrender's a surrender. But to Royal Marines, it does. So, yeah, we did not surrender. Well, this guy, it was like I was his best mate. He suddenly shook my hand, got on the radio, um, and from I don't know where, but suddenly all these Argentine Marines arrived and, uh, and I was asked to call my men out of the trench, leave the weapons in their trenches and then bring them out onto the beach. And this was when it got a bit scary as well, because uh, there we were, we were 22 of us on the beach, surrounded by a whole lot of Argentinians, had set up a couple of machine guns about 50 meters away from us. And I think a lot of guys had watched you know, the great escape and other things and thought, is this where we, we all cop it, where they say, oh, they all got killed in battle. I mean, there's no one witnessing this. Who, who was to know what was gonna happen next? But then the Argentinian officer said something in Spanish and they got down pretty much in front of us, I don't know, five, 10 meters away and uh, loaded the, the guns and cocked them. And, and I actually thought we were gonna get shot and Few of us actually said that when they got took on board the ship, and I was ready to run. As soon as I heard that one bullet, I wouldn't have got three foot, but I was going to run. And I know Al Larkin was stood beside, was knelt beside me, and he said, "Let's just go for it." The thing is, if we had a gun for it, we'd have been on top of that GPMG. It would have took a couple of us out, took the shins out who'd have then dropped on top of it. The amount of Argentines who were around us, they'd have been shooting each other as well as shooting us. So, yeah, it, it would have been, yeah. We wouldn't have got off the point alive, I suppose, but a lot of them would have died, died with us. But again, I think we were fortunate and we were dealing with, with professional military people here. And as they began to search the guys, it was quite funny because Marines love knives. He said, everyone's got a knife and the bigger your knife, the better it is. Well, one of the guys we had in our detachment was a guy called Brass O'Hare and he liked axes. So as they searched all the guys, they were finding all these knives and they were throwing them onto this big pile of knives. And they got to Brasso and put his hand in, in his tunic and out came this hand axe. And uh, they sort of talked in Spanish to each other, threw it on the pile, continued searching him, and out from the other side came a second hand axe. And he, they look at him, and he looks at them, and he goes, I said to say, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a couple of hand axes. Everyone should have, you know? one. <laughs> Everyone should have one, exactly. You know, when, this sort of illustrated to me how the guys were ready for when the ammunition was out, it would have been down to hand to hand, they would have carried on. And the Argentinians were then searching the trenches, and they got to where Barrasso's trench was, and there's this big commotion around this fence. Well, one of the things Brasso had done just before he got into his trench, he'd been into Shackleton House, and there was this beautiful big red fire axe on the wall, you know, about a meter long, and he thought, that is gonna be my personal weapon of choice. So he'd taken it down, and he had it in his trench ready for, for the end, so to speak. And of course, the Argentinians now found it. And the result of this was they were genuinely spooked by us. Uh, first of all, they couldn't believe there was only 22. They insisted yeah, I that say, I what? brought out the rest of the men. <laughs> yeah. And I had to say, well, no, this is all there, all there and is. And we've spoken to some, obviously, of the guys, and they said that the Marines were genuinely looking around. That's yeah. still weapons pointed out yeah. in some cases. And, of course, my guys are now getting a bit twitched because these guns are pointed out. I had to say to them, look, I said, again, luckily the Argentinian officers there were very understanding. I said, if your guys don't step back from those weapons then my guys are going to make a charge because they think we're all about to be shot here. And they understood and actually told their guys to 
stand up so they weren't actually literally lying right behind them, finger on the trigger, because it would only take somebody to sneeze, you'd have thought, for them, for carnage to have ensued. So with that, I think the, the Marines were all um, taken prisoner. Alfredo Astiz was now on the ground. He seemed to be taking charge at the time. And I had to tell him, uh, one of the things we had done is we'd, we'd, wired up, we'd booby-trapped all the buildings because uh, our plan had been to leave King Edward Point and go back up to Myviken and, and, and fight from there. So we thought we'd leave some little presents behind for the Argentinians. But of course, now we were prisoners of war, I, I thought perhaps a good idea to actually tell them that we'd booby-trapped all these buildings. Otherwise, they, they might not treat us quite so well when they find out we, we're killing them after the ceasefire, so to speak. The Argentinians made a big thing of saying, look, as far as we're concerned, We've got South Georgia now, we've got the Falklands, all we want to do is send you home. So again, with the exception of poor old Nice Peters, who's taken two rounds through the arm, everyone else is completely cock-a-hoop. The adrenaline is flowing like I've never experienced before and probably never will again, hopefully. And, you know, they're sending us home. So not only, none of us have been home for eight or nine months or whatever, so not only have we just had this fantastic scrap, we're actually being allowed to go home as well afterwards. The Marines were taken to Argentina, where they were held for several days. Eventually, they were flown back to Britain via Uruguay. After a full debrief and a couple of weeks' leave, they were sent back to the Falklands, where the conflict was still going on. South Georgia was restored to British control on the 25th of April. In June, Her Majesty the Queen announced immediate awards, including a Distinguished Service Cross for Keith and a Distinguished Service Medal for his platoon sergeant, Pete Leach. So the, they don't come out with the normal ones. They're, they're immediately, usually in the middle of a war. And so we were all given, that was my DSC was an immediate DSC, um, which is quite unusual. So I actually found that out. So I'd actually was at Keith Mills DSC while the war was still actually right. happening. And, and maybe there was obviously some enforced time then before you actually picked it up. I guess you had to wait. I had to wait to get back to the UK for a yeah. start. <laughs> it was in November that year. That, um, so it was a, a good few months and I guess yeah. the, the war is now... Done and dusted. Um, over and you're all back in the UK, yeah. literally for tea and medals because um, you go to Buckingham Palace, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And uh, was it presented by the Queen? Yes. Um, and how does that process work for, you know, I guess you're part of a, as I would call it, a sausage factory where you're being ushered through? Well, um, not, well, it is, you, you are lined up, but what amazed me when I met the Queen was when you're asked to step forward how much she knew about me personally. And she did it without any script or nobody whispered in her ear just before I stepped up. She knew that I was Keith Mills, that my DSC was for South, the actions on South Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, had a, a, a two or three minute conversation with me about that. And, and I remember walking away thinking, wow, she's had to do that with everyone. How does she remember? And maybe there's an auto cue that I couldn't see somewhere, but it was absolutely amazing. I remember being so impressed with that. I, I think uh, Keith did an absolutely sterling job, considering he was a young officer. I think he was 22 or 23. Couldn't have asked for a better officer uh, to be in charge of us and a better sergeant in Pete Leach as well. They deserve the recognition. Well, yeah, how would you describe it? I mean, a 22-year-old man suddenly put in this position with no real clear orders and he's got to make a decision and I suppose it comes down to a point where you, you think well yeah it's quite easy to go out fighting but as a young lieutenant his job was not to let 21 other men die for absolutely no purpose it's probably the hardest decision any military officer would ever have to make and but he, he was strong enough to do it and to make it quite clear but you know we're not debating it it's a, it's a it's an order and that's that you know and saved our lives in the process so um yeah i thought he deserved the highest medal he could have gotten yeah quite proud that he did get his dsc the thing I, I'm constantly amazed back now I'm 61 years old, but it's constantly amazed me for years, is at that time I was only 22 years old. And I remember when my son was 22 years old, which is 10 years ago now, I'm thinking, wow, 
would I trust him to make those decisions? And yet, at the time, it felt completely normal because of the training we'd all been through. Uh, and I'm sure I speak for all the, the guys in the detachment that it was absolutely nothing more than would have been expected of us at the time. But the thing I admire most, again, with the benefit of hindsight, is the respect from the detachment. It would only take one person to decide, well, I don't want to surrender. I'm going to carry on shooting. And who knows what the outcome might have been. But every single one of them did exactly what they should have done. An extract from Keith's citation reads, Lieutenant Mills was the commanding officer of a 22-man War Marines contingent dispatched to South Georgia on the 31st of March 1982 to monitor the activities of a group of Argentines illegally landed on the island and to protect a British Antarctic survey team based there. On the 3rd of April 1982, a major Argentine assault began on the island and, following his unsuccessful attempts to forestall the attack by negotiation, Lieutenant Mills conducted a valiant defence in the face of overwhelming odds. In spite of the fact that his unit was impossibly outnumbered, extensive damage was inflicted on the Argentine corvette Garico. One helicopter was shot down and another damaged. Only when the detachment was completely surrounded and it was obvious that further resistance would serve no purpose did he order a ceasefire, placing himself at great personal risk to convey this fact to the invading forces. Lieutenant Mills's resolute leadership during this action reflected the finest traditions of the Corps. Is there anything else that we missed, do you think? I know we've, we've covered our... Oh. Gisela's always got a question. Your dad wasn't very happy about you joining the Marines because he wanted you to go to university. That's correct. After all of this... Oh, it was his idea. Uh, it was his idea I should have joined the Marines. He always knew that was the best thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> All my mates chuckle about that because they know that is not so not true. Tea and Medals is written and produced by Josella Waldron and Simon Thornton. Edited by Andy Prada with sound design by Mark Pittam. Original music is by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. With thanks to Keith Mills, DSC, Bob Ashton and Steve Holding. Let us know what you think. Email us at podcasts at bfbs.com. Yeah.